know what that means? Everything. Anglo-thieves. Gettle's gone. Oh my god, you people have just failed me. Failed me utterly. Congratulations, Scotland. We have just gone full brigadier. That just explains so much of my childhood to me. Research purposes. It's super important. I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 34 of Anglophies, where we're going to talk about things that are totally 100% true all the time. Nothing is made up. Hi, I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And I'm drunk. <laughs> I wish I were, too. Scottish. That's, I mean... My daily life. <laughs> the sad, depressing Scottish summer where we have had floods and continual rain and people have been driven out of their homes and the only way I can really cope is alcohol bought from Japan there you go I and dare you to week, judge me and last week I went to the beach and it was lovely <laughs> and Kaylee and I talked about the weather it was hilarious Yep. it was that most Anglo of things talking about the weather Yep, well, the American was like, fuck it, I'm going to the beach. And I did, and it was great. Did you burn? Nope. It's clearly global warming is benefiting some of us more than others. Yes. Yes, although the reason we went to the beach was because it was over 90, and it was humid and terrible. So the only thing to do is just sit in the Atlantic Ocean up to your neck. And watch the the kite borders, which is really incredible. And it looks terrifying, and I really want to do it now. Anyway, so we're uh, going to talk about documentaries. Some of us have watched some. Well, we've all watched some. we watch different ones to talk about. So I don't really have a good transition into this. So, Kaylee. Yes. This, this, this one's your baby. I feel really, really tacky drinking extensively as I talk about the Amy Winehouse documentary, <laughs> but it cannot be helped. Uh, so basically, Asif Kapadia is a British filmmaker. He made a film called Senna, which was about Ayrton Senna, the race car driver, the Formula One driver, I should say. And his follow-up film is the official documentary about Amy Winehouse, the singer who died four years ago at the age of 27. It was actually recently the anniversary of her death, I believe a couple of days ago, which is just terrifying to me because I have an extremely clear memory of finding out when she died. Mm-hmm. Like I remember the exact time and place. I was at my summer job and I was checking my phone on Twitter, as you do, and just came up that she died. And I thought, no, that's not real. And then, well, actually it was. Right. And it took a while to sink in. So this documentary is already wildly successful in the UK. I believe it has become the second most successful documentary that to receive a theatrical release in the country. People don't tend to go in on mass to see documentaries in the UK. It's it's specifically, you know, an art house indie cinema thing. So for people to actually go has been a big story in and of itself, but the film itself is also surrounded by a little bit of controversy because Amy Winehouse's dad, Mitch Winehouse, has come out and publicly condemned the film for what he sees as the 
unfair portrayal of himself. Um, spoiler alert, he comes across as a total dick in the film. Yeah. I, I don't think it's necessarily unfair. I think it's the way that the story unfolds. And you could argue that the narrative has been twisted to that manner. But given the way that the story's been told, which is ex- exclusively through old footage of Weinhardt's from concerts, from her own videos, from mobile phone footage from her friends, and so on. None of this has been filmed by Kapadia. He has just taken the footage and put it together with interviews, but you never actually see anyone being interviewed. You only hear them, mm-hmm. which I think gives it a really impressionistic feel. So it's a relatively linear documentary in that this starts at the beginning of her career when she's about 16 and follows through to the end, a very tragic short end of her life. But what I thought was particularly striking about the film is the way that it utilised her music to tell the story, not just of her career, but the way that she employed her artistic skills to tell her own life and the struggles that she had. So she only ever released two albums, which I think is a shock to a lot of people. But all of her songs are the that mould of very personal, very personally scathing kind of confessional writing, songwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, she's described as being you know, the old soul in a young body. So you have all these songs about her struggles with men, including her dad. There's obviously Rehab, her most famous song, which is as her old manager says, is verbatim what happened the day they they staged an intervention to get her into rehab and her dad said she didn't need it. Mm -hmm. And he wonders why he comes across bad in this movie. Right. And then there's that entire album of Back to Black, which is just the devastating breakup album from the guy who ditched her for another woman and then came crawling back into her life once she became famous. Mm -hmm. It's a devastating piece of work. It's beautifully made. And it does remind you of how talented she was and how incredibly poignant her songwriting was. And her voice was amazing, especially when you hear it live, because I think that a lot of her albums are a little overproduced. So you don't really get to hear just how great, particularly a jazz singer she was. But it's also an incredibly scathing piece of work in terms of tackling the way that the world were very happy to exploit her and then turn her into a public joke in order to continue to exploit her. Mm-hmm. So every now and then, the film stops and shows us a still photo of her. And it's usually a paparazzi shot, or there were a couple of webcam pictures, which are also really hard to watch. And it shows her deteriorating state as she loses a significant amount of weight because she was bulimic, as she gets further into drink, as she gets further into drugs. You know, the hair gets bigger, the eyeliner gets more smudged. The pictures become more harder to look at as the light goes from her eyes as she's chased around by paparazzi and sinks further into addiction. And it just sort of lingers on those pictures. And then it will intersperse it with things like the jokes that all the comedians told about her. So there's a moment where you see footage of her being chased down the street by paparazzi where she's very clearly really ill. And then it's interspersed with Jay Leno telling horrible jokes about her. Mm-hmm. And it makes you really angry. Because it's very clear that she needs help. And looking back, it was always clear that she needed help. But making her public punchline was far easier to do than admit maybe we shouldn't exploit a woman who, at this moment in time, is on the verge of dying. So I think in terms of who it is most 
scathing towards. I know that it's not very kind about Mitch Winehouse, but he's not been especially good in the years after her death. There was an incident where uh, Beyonce covered Back to Black for the um, the Great Gatsby film. Mm-hmm. And he went on this rant about what a terrible cover it was and how Amy Winehouse never would have allowed it. What you didn't hear him saying was how he got about 150 grand to get the, give them the rights to sing that song. So, you know, he's, he's all right about protecting her legacy until it can make him a bit of cash. There's a bit in the film, actually, where he is making a documentary called My Daughter Amy and he turns up on holiday to St. Lucia where she's been staying for the past few months away from drugs and trying to, you know, get away from the ridiculous spotlight that's been on her and this camera crew are with him and you can tell just by looking at her she looks devastated that his you know she's had her trust broken in such a way mm-hmm. uh, it's not particularly kind towards the ex-husband and it doesn't even include all of the really shitty stuff he did after she died like tried to sell naked pictures of her it doesn't need it i mean i think it's scathing enough that but it's more scathing towards the entire ecosystem that surrounded her Mm -hmm. you know of people who were more their priorities were more about making money from her touring and her albums than they were about getting her the help that she needs there's also one really there's two heartbreaking moments actually involving tony bennett of all people there's a moment where she's um it's the grammys and he's presenting um album of the year i believe it is or song Mm -hmm. of the year and she's nominated and they show clips of her as she sees that Tony Bennett's walked on and she's she's geeking out, basically, that Tony Bennett is there mm-hmm. and he's just said her name. And it's just a moment where, oh, she's actually a bit of a fangirl from him. That's really adorable. You get to see her be this sort of very sweet person. And then cut to a few years later and she's doing a duet with him and she's also, you know, really geeking out over this and trying to get into the process of duetting with this man who's her idol and not wanting to let him down and he's acting as this sort of mentor to her and all you can think watching this is why couldn't you just take her under your wing and look after her because somebody needed to do that mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I think it's definitely worth seeing it's not an easy watch as you can imagine it's incredibly tragic especially because you know how it's everyone knows how it's going to end it doesn't make the journey any less harrowing mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, I think it's worth seeing just to be reminded of how good she actually was, but it doesn't whitewash her into some sort of you know Saint Amy, which I think a lot of people have been doing now. Mm-hmm. Really, as she was a very troubled woman who was extremely talented and she deserved better. And I think the film offers what needed to be said. So I'm glad it's doing really well. I think it will probably do very well in terms of awards at the end of the year, not to jinx it or anything. But I definitely think that it cements Asif Kapadia as the great documentary maker in Britain right now. Mm-hmm. So if you get a chance to see it, go see it, uh, take along some tissues, <laughs> and then go buy her albums, because both her albums are great. I've only heard good things about it as a film experience, not just from you, Kaylee, but, you know, on Twitter and on social media, you can see people who watch it always talk about how affected they were by it and how moving it is. So obviously as a piece of, you know, crafted cinematic work, it's, it's, it's done well and it's doing its job. But thinking about it, this documentary of the tragic figure, even though the movie 
appears to be critical of the exploitation she received during her life and how she didn't receive the help she needed. To me, what it actually is, in some way, is the established epilogue to the ecosystem of exploiting a celebrity. You know what I mean? Like, we... Uh, they they live their life literally in front of people and they're often financially exploited by people around them there's drugs and alcohol problems a lot because that's how you skip reality and also everybody's willing to sell you something when you've got the money to buy it and then the comedians like Jay Leno make fun of you and then if you die somebody's gonna make a very sad documentary about what a tragic talent you were and you passed before your time and yeah, it's going to reveal how awful people were that they didn't help you. But, you know, it also doesn't help you now that you're dead. And it's just another way for people to kind of participate in this final bit of, well, now you're there to enlighten us and also makes us feel kind of sad, but but beautiful about, you know, how awful your life was. And I don't know, like, what do you think of that? What do you think of the movie is, is still kind of part of the system that it's trying to criticize? I definitely get those criticisms. I think it avoids them for most for two reasons mostly. One, it manages to tread that line between showing the exploitation without taking part in it, without benefiting it from it herself. Um, and I think it does that mostly because it shows Winehouse as being a fully rounded human being and not just a victim. And she definitely was a victim of this horrible system and of a terrible addiction and really passive inaction from people like her for her family the ex-husband the record company and so on Uh, but what i think in terms of that kind of exploitation there's another documentary that just came out about kirk bain which i haven't seen it's called montage of heck and there was a discussion it would face the same kind of exploitation but there was also a really fascinating article in pitchfork which talked about the gendering of martyrdom Mm-hmm. in relation to Amy Winehouse and Kurt Cobain and how Kurt Cobain has got to be the tragic hero to a generation who succumbed to the horrors of depression and drugs, whereas Amy Winehouse has been the junkie. Mm-hmm. And there's still that today. She never really... Maybe it's because in terms of its place in music history, Nirvana has had a bigger impact than... Winehouse has also because more time has passed there's been more time to build up that kind of legend but I think that one of the things that the Winehouse documentary does so well is I don't want to say if it shows it's, I feel like balance is the wrong term because it's definitely not about taking sides even for there are very clear sides that need to be the, t- the side it takes is Amy Winehouse's side mm-hmm and very few people have taken Amy Winehouse's side in anything recently, at least for nobody's benefit but hers. The argument that her dad has been trying to make is that this is ruining, this is um, distorting the relationship that he had with her, but he's never really offered up a con- you know, a real explanation for why he disappeared from her life for so long, came back when she was famous, and brought camera crews with him, especially when she was in the throes of addiction. I, d- I definitely understand those um, those concerns because you know she was exploited enough, and because this documentary was something I believe Universal actually approached Asif Kapadia and asked, "Would you be interested in making this?" 
I think you can tell a lot about a film from the people who are criticising it and that the most vocal critics of the film have been people who have been concerned about how they are portrayed in the film and not Amy Winehouse herself. Mm-hmm. I, I think that speaks volumes on that level as well. So it's definitely something that I think requires further, more eloquent discussion. But for me, at least, I don't think it was... It didn't martyr her, the film. It didn't play the St. Amy card. It was just her story told with the their, you know the benefit of hindsight, which is in and of itself a problem. There was an interview on Fresh Air with... Um, the the filmmaker and Amy's first manager and god the the interview is just it's really hard to listen to because her her former manager is like still kicking himself for not standing up for her as much as as he thinks he should have yeah he's really the the voice of the film because you don't see anyone being interviewed but he's really the one that offers the the most insightful view of particularly of pre back to black amy before the beehive before the the eyeliner before the really dramatic loss and weight when this was her Mm -hmm. first album which is definitely more jazz than the kind of girl band pop of the 60s that back to black is yeah so you get to see her being this very funny very down-to-earth, very North London girl. Common, mm-hmm. I believe, is the word that one of the interviewers uses to describe her, which she just laughs at. Yeah. <laughs> There's a great bit, actually, in the film where she's being interviewed and someone compares her to Dido, and the, just the look on her face yeah. when this oh. conversation goes on, she's just like, I can't believe you said that. Yeah. Uh, and so her... It's really... It, I mean, he's really fascinating to listen to because he was also... He started managing her when she was 16 and he was 19, Mm-hmm. So what they built up was more, it, it was as much a manager relationship, but it was also like family. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, they didn't really get the chance to, he certainly didn't really get the chance to properly deal with the grief. And two of the other people that they interview are her best friends from childhood. And they admit that they never got to to really deal with it either because in many ways they kind of ended up being shut out of her life the more famous she got and the more that she was surrounded by people who just wanted to make money out of her. Yep. And and her manager also talks about when he was approached and he chose to cooperate and help and be interviewed because he felt like this documentary and this filmmaker were going to be on Amy's side and not not skew it for a specific viewpoint. And yeah, it, one of the things that it was reminding me of was um, they recently there were rumours that they were going to cast Dominic Cooper in the Freddie Mercury movie and originally it was going to be Sasha Baron Cohen who dropped out of doing the role that he'd spent years preparing for because the Queen Estate wanted it to be this PG story of his life that would really kind of play down or omit the heavy drinks and drugs and bisexuality and HIV and it was like why would you want to try and wipe that out especially when it's common knowledge mm-hmm. like you couldn't make a documentary about Freddie Mercury that didn't mention all like that just like you couldn't make a film about Amy Winehouse without mentioning the fact that she died of alcohol poisoning and that she was surrounded by these terrible people and she became 
a very public train wreck and the public were kind of delighted to have something to scorn at. There's another bit in the film where towards the end they show the final concert she gave that she was basically forced into doing and she didn't want to do it. She was wrecked and she just sort of sits down on stage completely drunk and doesn't know what to do and everyone's booing her and it's filmed on some guy's phone and then they show that footage on CNN and there's some newsreader who's just laughing and saying, well, she blew it. I think that was actually the bit that really pissed me off. That pissed me off more than the comedians because I don't expect better from Jay Leno. Jay Leno's shit. Mm-hmm. I don't expect better from that George Lopez guy who's reading out the nominations for the Grammys she gets and then says, would someone wake her up, this stupid drunk, to let her know? Yeah. So you couldn't even give her that moment of joy, you creeps. So I don't think the documentary could have been really done any other way in a way that would allow it to be authentic. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's what, because Mitch Winehouse has now said he's going to make a film about the real Amy, and it's probably just going to be about how, well, she wouldn't have done it without me, because I was so wonderful and taught her everything she knows. Yeah. Yeah, Terry Terry Gross asked about Mitch Winehouse, and both, and both men were just like, whatever. He, <laughs> <laughs> much. He, he, he comes off the way he comes off, because that's where he was. He didn't, he wasn't interviewed. He didn't want to be. And uh, this is what he presented, and this is how he was in the, you know, this is how he's documented as, so whatever. Well, there's a bit in the film where he's talking, and the big criticism he has is he said that they've omitted key parts of his interview where they're talking about the incident where there's a an intervention with her old manager, and he says, look, you need help, and she agrees, but says, look, I'm going to ask my dad first and her dad says no which is documented in her most famous song mm-hmm. and he says I didn't say she didn't need to go to rehab I said she didn't need to go to rehab at the time and it's like that's a really small <laughs> a hell that you want to hair. die on isn't it mm. because either way it's very clear she needed help and you didn't need to keep bussing her to concerts you couldn't split that hair any thinner pretty much I mean because he, he's also I mean, he's now still in charge of her estate. He's in charge of the Amy Winehouse Foundation, which is the charity set up in her name. He's the one that got the statue of her in Camden, even though Camden was the area that kind of, you know, where all the parasites came out to take advantage of her. Mm-hmm. He's the one that set up an exhibit in the, the Jewish Museum of London to her, even though there have been criticisms that it doesn't really fit and it's more about him once again. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he's going to continue digging his little hole and people are going to see the film and make up their own minds. Because I do think it is a film that allows you to really come to your own conclusions. It's not holding your hand in that way. Right. But, I, I mean, if it ends up being the most successful documentary in the UK, and I think it will, it will be very well earned. And I hope it does well in America as well, because I think to Americans, she's just the woman who died young in sang rehab. Yeah. So I don't even think her first album got a release in America. Not that I am aware of. It's a really beautiful piece of work if you're interested in that kind of jazz. Mm-hmm. So go see Amy. <laughs> I mean, it's made something like five million pounds so far, which for a documentary is pretty much unheard of. No, seven million dollars mm-hmm. so far. And that's from a really limited release. I mean, it was one of those cases where you put it in like 10 theaters and everyone goes to see it in those 10 theaters. Yeah, it's playing in a couple of the art house independent theaters uh, one of which I was thinking about trying to see it yesterday but did not but the Somerville theater serves beer so that would probably be in poor taste 
It's not going to stop me, though. <laughs> I'm still drinking. I cannot complain on this round. Right? <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you like Amy, watch Asakapadia's other documentary, Senna. Like, I don't give a shit about Formula One, and I think that documentary is phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, is there anything that can make you care about something you don't care about? Mm-hmm. I think it's worth your time. I mean, that's kind of what documentaries do. That's... <laughs> that's, that should be their byline. Right. <laughs> you, make you care about shit you don't care about. <laughs> documentaries are pretty much the only way I've given a shit about so much. Yeah. <laughs> They're also the way that they kind of appeal to certain fascinations that I have. Like, I am that person who really likes trashy crime dramas and true crime stuff that you watch at like one o'clock in the morning on some godforsaken satellite channel mm-hmm. or HBO because they're now getting into that because the jinx was amazing the what? the jinx oh my god it was so good what was it? it's the life and deaths of Robert Durst the uh, it's directed by Robert Andrew Durst who basically confessed to murder on camera yeah it's a guy who's basically got away with potentially killing three people because he's extremely rich and totally bizarre. Uh, he was um, he was caught in somewhere in Texas after his neighbor was found killed, dismembered, and dumped in a river. And he was at the time disguising himself as a woman and living in the house. He was caught. They found out that he was part of the Durst family who have built a significant portion of the real estate in New York City. So he comes from money. And then they found out that he may or may not have murdered his wife who went missing in the 80s and was never found. He basically admitted he dismembered the body, but it was a total accidental death. And he got acquitted. And so Andrew Jarecki made a film about him starring Ryan Gosling. He doesn't look like Ryan Gosling, by the way. No. Not even close. (laughs) He does not. (laughs) You cast Ryan Gosling because obviously. And he saw the film and agreed to do an interview with Andrew Jarecki and it turned into this six-part documentary where he ended up accidentally confessing on camera that he killed them all. It is utterly gripping if you get a chance to watch it. It verges on trashy. Like there's very well shot reenactments of things that you think maybe they're a little too lovingly shot. But then you get to things like they interview certain members of the jury that acquitted him of murdering this guy that he very clearly murdered and you just get really infuriated. But the final episode is they've been doing some detective work and they found a clue that ties him to a third murder of one of his friends and it's them sort of pulling back from him and you know interrogating themselves as filmmakers and saying, look, what do we do? This has moved far beyond just a film. This has become something potentially dangerous. How do we go about dealing with this? Because I got compared to Serial a lot, and I didn't like Serial, despite the fact that it is one, it's a genre and a number of tropes that I really like. I just couldn't click with it. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that that episode does that Serial did for it was sort of examining how you go about trying to solve its own case. But I was more interested in the Jinx doing it because with Serial, it was just, well, I had a hunch and oh, he just seemed like such a nice guy. And I'm like, fuck you. I don't care about this. Stop talking. This is not folksy. You are dealing with murder. Stop trying to turn it into something kind of cutesy and okay for an NPR audience and for Reddit because fuck Reddit. I'm just still impressed by, you know, interview level accidental murder confession. Yeah. 
got his skills. <laughs> oh yeah. But he is um a really strange figure to watch. He's very he has lots of ticks. He blinks a lot. When he coughs, it sounds like he's trying to expel all of his organs. It is the weirdest thing to watch. If you've ever watched like an Errol Morris film, he's really good at interviewing people as well. He did The Fog of War where he interviewed Robert McNamara, who was kind of considered the architect of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And it's really him trying to push McNamara as far as he will go until he really sort of confesses that he really fucked up. He tried to do it with Donald Rumsfeld in his new film, The Unknown Known, and Rumsfeld just beat him down, which was really sad to watch. <laughs> but if you've got the chance, because I'm sure it's it will, it's out on DVD or it'll be out on HBO Go or whatever, it's incredibly addictive. And I'm think, I think it got nominated for a bunch of Emmys as well. So... It'd be cool if it won, although I think it's up against um, it's up against Citizen Four, which is the Edward Snowden piece, mm-hmm. which I've been told is really excellent, but I really don't want Glenn Greenwald to win awards. Well, he already won an Oscar, didn't he? <laughs> oh God, he couldn't have looked any more excited to get his hands on that, could he? So you didn't make the film, man. Why are you here? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's also up against Going Clear, so it's like, who do you want to piss off more, Glenn Greenwald or Zenu? I still haven't seen the um, Going Clear because it only got a one week cinema release here and it was at 8 o'clock in the evening and I couldn't get transport back Mm. because living at home sucks sometimes but the book is amazing if you get the chance to read that that thing is scary well compared to all of Kaylee's exciting stuff the documentary (laughs) I watched was much less about you know human drama it was kind of more of an intellectual curiosity thing we like those too yeah, so I watched Tim's Vermeer, which I first heard of when it came to TIFF, and I didn't make it out to see it at TIFF, but when I saw it on Netflix, I immediately jumped at the chance. Tim's Vermeer was produced by Pendulette and di- directed by Teller, Penn and Teller accredited as its writers. It's about a friend of theirs, well, possibly uh, not a mutual friend of theirs, but rather more a friend of Pendulette's. He's on, he's on camera um, a couple of times, kind of introducing the subject of the documentary, Tim Jennison. Tim Jennison is an inventor. He actually has either like Oscars or Emmys of his own because he founded a company that invented a lot of 3D filming technologies. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the area where his expertise is, you know, various cameras. I, they listed the movies, which are possible thanks to his technologies. I think Cameron's Avatar is one of them. So the basic kind of premises is that if you've seen one of the new, really kind of graphic, intensive 3D movies anywhere in the past 15 years, you've probably did it thanks to Tim Jennison's work. So when he, this man understands what a movie looks like and what... Um, a movie moment looks like and he became obsessed with Vermeer's painting because to him Vermeer's paintings look like stills from movies it could it didn't become an expose on what obsession is but it can it could have gone there because this is a man who basically say that he lies awake at night tortured by the fact that he'll never paint like Vermeer and he's not a painter like, he, he just had this obsession like, with, with creating a Vermeer. It's, it's, 
it's it's really interesting, you know, how this man's mind works. The reason is, is he's looking at these paintings and he's seeing all these tricks of light about it. And he's like, that's not how the human eye sees. That's how a camera sees. How did he do it? So he, he goes around, he visits, you know, Vermeer's museums. He researches into art techniques of the time. The the movie also brings in some art specialists uh, when it's appropriate and Vermeer scholars. And it touches on the fact that there was a time when art and science were not two separate entities. You know, for, for example, the masters of the Renaissance and later being artists meant inventing technologies that allowed them to be better at it. For example, they particularly talk about the camera obscura t- technique, which is when the painter sits in a dark room and there's just a, kind of a hole and the light shines through so the image that's outside the room gets reflected on the wall. Mm-hmm. And really his exploration into how Vermeer could have taken um, starts with camera obscura and then he develops further theories. And these all had to be constrained by uh, Vermeer-era technologies, which he very you know, specifically follows. What's fascinating is one of the Vermeer scholars tells him in an interview, you know, you're never going to find a letter where Vermeer says, this is how I did it, because these were jealously guarded trade secrets. He was never going to put it on paper. If, you know, if he had a specific way of painting, he was never going to put that on paper, just the same way as these artists would never put the chemical compositions of their pigments on paper, you know, so people could duplicate their colors. Like, that's not the way things work. So you were never going to find a primary source document that would prove one way or another how Vermeer painted, how he achieved these, you know, these details of light and shadow, for example. So all you could do is, you know, look at technologies of the time and using those, can you reasonably replicate what happened and then say, okay, well, this looks like it. And that's kind of what the documentary follows is his process. I need to watch this immediately. It's fascinating. (laughs) He basically, with this man, and again, who's not an artist, has never held a brush. So he set up kind of a small camera obscura, and then he put just a simple mirror at a certain angle in front of the reflected image, and he realized that he doesn't have to paint. He just has to have some paints and a brush. And if he matches precisely the color at the edge of the mirror that's reflecting the image, he started with a photograph he had lying around the house. And then, you know, he moves the mirror and keeps on matching the color. And when he's done with the image, he takes it away. He literally painted almost like a photographically accurate copy of the original image. And he's never held a brush before. He he shows it to an artist and shows him how he did it. And, you know, he says, like, I've, I've, you know, it took me 40 minutes to learn how to really properly hold a brush so I can move it. And the artist, like, took me a lifetime. (laughs) Oh, that must be a slight kick in the teeth, right? Yeah. <laughs> I've never done this thing before. I'm going to give it a go. I hate you so much. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. And it's not like he's then, you know, pretending to be a great painter. He's literally just saying, like, I, I discovered this technology that lets me transfer onto a canvas or paper using paints an image that I see precisely duplicating all the colors in it. Even though, like, but if, if you take all, you know, the mirror and everything away, like, he couldn't do it. He's not an artist. So he does have that slight question of like, what's an artist? And again, goes back to, we now separate art and science. And there was a time where that wasn't a division that existed. Mm-hmm. So he sets out on a huge project where he takes Vermeer's The Music Lesson, 
which is in private ownership by who else? Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth of England. Sure. They travel to London where he requests to be able to see the painting and she initially refuses. And I think just before they're allowed to, they're about to leave, uh, she changes her mind and he's allowed in alone with, with no cameras or anything. I think he gets like half an hour with the painting. And what he then sets out to do is in some warehouse, he recreates the room. So he tries to find the, or, or commission or like make himself. I mean, he is an inventor. He likes to do stuff with his hands. All the furniture that's in the room, you know, the fabrics on the rugs and, and people's clothing and, and the mosaic of the window. He even recreates the shadows from outside. Like he does kind of a 3D model of what, of the view out of Vermeer's window. And then he creates the outlines and like, uh, like a cardboard cutout of that skyline to put it outside the warehouse window so it would like throw the shadows accurately. So that's a painstaking process. And all of that has to be done with materials that existed in Vermeer's lifetime. He creates from scratch paints, again, only using what exists in Vermeer's lifetime. So he tries to replicate everything as accurately as he can, sets up this room, and then sets to paint it using the process that he discovered and see if he could actually think, you know, how would it come out? So the really fascinating thing that happens at about the midpoint of this process, and it takes him like a year, is that he accidentally creates, well, not accidentally, but by following this process, he creates the same kind of visual mistakes that exist in Vermeer's painting. So there's a lot, there's a, oh, it's, it's not a piano, what's a virginal is what I'm looking at. There's a virginal and it has, so obviously that's, you know, it's a rectangular box. And this was uh, manufactured, so it's, you know, perfectly rectangular, and it has a design. And as he's painting, he notices that the part that's supposed to be, you know, a straight line design on it is curving. And then he pulls out, like, you know, the biggest, kind of most high-resolution reproduction of the music lesson he has and puts it under uh, a glass, and it's curving in the Vermeer painting. And he's just following where the, where, you know, his mirror takes him, so he's not doing it on purpose. <laughs> So that, that, that little moment like really connected him to the painting. And um, one of the interesting interview he did is he noticed, and again, this is something he can only do because he has experience with cameras, is he noticed that the Vermeer painting had these kind of shadow elements on the wall that basically if, if you're just looking, if you're actually standing in a room looking at the wall, your human eye is not capable of seeing those because of how we perceive light, wouldn't be capable of seeing it. Mm -hmm. So if you took a photo with, you know, a high quality camera, modern camera in the photograph. Yeah, those it's it's kind of actually similar to remember that meme with the dress we had a few months ago. Oh, God. It's black and gold <laughs> and the dress is always the same color. But we actually how we see the photograph and how we would see the real dress. So that this is that situation, right? Like he, if you took a photo of that wall, like, yeah, those 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 things would be there. But if a painter sat down and painted it, the painter is physically unable to see them but they are there in the Vermeer painting. Mm -hmm. And he actually went to, to talk to uh, a, a neuro, neuroscientist, um, neurologist who specializes in kind of the eye and the brain. And he's like, is there any way Vermeer could have seen them? And, you know, could he be a genius? And they're like, it's not a matter of being a genius. It's a matter of being a mutant. <laughs> you know, either you're human or you're not. And if you're human, you cannot perceive those, perceive that, those light differences. So yeah, so it takes him a year. He almost dies because at some point it's cold and they put a patio heater in the warehouse. 
and don't check whether it's safe to use inside. And it's him and an assistant. And by the time he's like hallucinating dragons, and the assistant's <laughs> falling asleep, and they're like, maybe we need to leave this. Now turn this off and leave. Well, he wants the full artistic experience. You've got to have some kind of hallucinations in there, usually by drugs, but that sounds marginally safer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, almost dies of carbon monoxide poisoning, but finishes it and takes him about a year. He has in his house now a perfect reproduction of Vermeer's music lesson painted by him. He, he took it to the art historians who are, you know, specialists in the field, and they were all pretty impressed. <laughs> One of them said, you know, the one who was saying you won't find primary documents like letters, he says, well, the painting is a document. Vermeer's paintings are documents about how he painted, and your painting is a document about how it can be reproduced. This is this is your primary source. And and this is what satisfied his obsession, is uh, he cried when he finished, and you know now it's pride of place in his home, his Vermeer. It sounds like really fascinating sort of contrasts between the worlds of technology and art and how they intersect. Of what does just make me sort of, what do you do after you've completed your obsession? Do you find a new obsession or do you just sort of get on with your life? (laughs) Yep. To me, he came across as the kind of person who just finds a new obsession. I mean, there's a reason he's invented new technologies. He's just going to go inventing something else, I imagine. Yeah. Is he going to try and recreate another massively famous piece of art next? Tim's Da Vinci, Tim's Sistine Chapel. You know, it's almost kind of curious that he didn't go for... Da Vinci has so many of these little inventions, right? You'd think the technology guy would go for that. Maybe he thought that was a little too mainstream. Yeah, because, I mean, that's been done. And it what it sounds like he does is experimental archaeology, or what he did there was experimental archaeology, which is a thing we do in the SCA all the time of, well, this is a period thing. I want to make the period thing. I'm going to try to make the period thing the way it would have been done. So you have people who sit down and make period tools in order to make period tools in order to make the thing. Mm -hmm. There are some people who go that many levels down the rabbit hole. And just figuring out, like, from a statue, how this Roman clothing worked. It's not always that easy, because they're all white. They used to be painted, but they're not anymore. So, does this fold go with this part of the garment, or this part of the garment? I don't know. Let's fuck around until we find out. Um, Only he took it to a couple of different levels of magnitude, since he had to, you know, go hang out at Buck House. Or wherever the music lesson is. It is in Buckingham Palace. Yeah. He had to go to Buckhouse and get permission from an actual queen. That's... How do you go about doing that? Do you write a letter to someone? or Probably. They didn't document the process, but it was funny because you could tell that Penn and Teller were about to stage one of their like scathing reviews of a person in power. Yeah. <laughs> they on a person in power abusing that power and... Just like on the lawn of Buckingham Palace. Yeah, I need to watch this immediately. Well, not immediately, like when we're done. But It's on Netflix? It's on Netflix. It's not actually very long. I think it's just under an hour and a half. Okay. It's it's one of those things where it doesn't go too deep into any of these issues that I said it raised. It just kind of skims along them because they're really committed to just like the timeline of the creation. Mm-hmm. It's nice when people have enough money to follow through their hobbies to that degree. Yeah. 
it's very definitely portrayal of that. It doesn't talk about it, but it also very clearly shows it that, you know, this is a very wealthy man. I mean, yeah, he earned his wealth, but now he has it and all this time and the capability of both travel around the world and rent a warehouse for a year. And build all this shit. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, cool. It is. It's just very neat to watch. His poor kids, though he, uh, the music lesson has to people in the in the show, in the painting. There's the woman actually being taking the lesson and her music teacher, and his one of his daughters was home from college, so they dressed her up as the girl in the painting, which meant for a month that she was supposed to be on vacation. She got to sit there for oh. you know, however many hours a day. Dad, <laughs> posing for her dad's stupid Ramirez. <laughs> dad <laughs> which I think and she got to dress up as you know a young Dutch girl but I think that was only fun for about a day <laughs> yeah I hope she was properly compensated yeah I mean like dressing up in ridiculous clothes is a lot of fun dressing up in ridiculous clothes and sitting in the same spot for a month that's a lot less fun <laughs> so what did you see Raiden I watched Man on Wire, which is the documentary about Philippe Petit and his high wire, 1974 high wire walk between the two towers of the World Trade Center in New York. And I will admit that I chose to watch this one because of previews for Zemeckis's uh, Oscar bait film, The Walk. That's what it's called, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I will also say that having watched the documentary, now I kind of want to see the movie, which I didn't really want to see before. But there's no way in hell I'm going to watch it in IMAX or 3D because I'll puke. Yeah, Um, I think it's a great idea for them to do that, but it's not a film I necessarily want to see in that format because... I get vertical climbing certain flights of stairs. So, so yeah. (laughs) So... The documentary is really well done because they got had their hands on film taken during the prep for the whole plan, or as Petit calls it, le coup, which is kind of adorable. And him practicing with the wire, the, the same thickness of wire in his backyard, and them going, okay, so we know that wind will make the tower shake, so it's going to make the... The wire move a bunch, so... Okay, you guys stand on the guy wires and just jump up and down and try and make the wire move as much as possible. And it goes through the whole process of how they planned and how they broke in and got all of this stuff up there and used a bow and arrow to shoot the wire across from one tower to the other which is possibly the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard and the only way it could possibly have worked. They have interviews with, like 2008 interviews with everybody who was involved, including their guy on the inside who they basically called up and said, so we're going to, we want to do a high wire act between the towers. Can you help smuggle us into the building? Can we use you as a front for our papers? And he's like, okay. This is ridiculous. <laughs> okay. So were they literally there illegally? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. He got arrested after after he was done. Uh, there were cops on both 
both towers once they realized what was going on because they had plants down in the crowd, including his girlfriend at the time was like, look, look, there's a dude on a wire up. Look, everybody look. (laughs) And there were cops on both sides trying to get him to come in, but he, he did his act for 45 minutes before he deigned to get off the wire and all the cops are like, we're not going out there to go get him. Are you insane? <laughs> and uh, he was... The man on wire comes from the police report of <laughs> what he did. <laughs> um, but yeah, they they broke in. They hid out in the top of the tower all night before waiting for the security guards to go away before they could do the rigging. It's ridiculous. And then in the most French thing possible, after he was released from, after he had been arrested and he, the cops released him, there was a woman in the crowd who's like, I want to be the first to bang the dude <laughs> who did a high wire act. And instead of going and meeting his co-conspirators and his girlfriend, he went and banged this woman. The sad thing is he's so charming and so sweet that you're like, yeah, you go bang that woman, Philippe. <laughs> he's like, of course I did. I was like one of the greatest moments of passion I'd ever had. And I'm like, you're so French. <laughs> and he has the Frenchest French accent you've ever Frenched. Yep. If yep. you've watched the trailer for The Walk, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is putting on the kind of accent where you're looking to see where the baguette is. Mm-hmm. And you think, oh, that's really too much. No, that's actually what Philippe Petit sounds like. Yep. Yep. It's true. It was, it's really well done. It. I am still not too clear. Like, they did put guy wires on the, the tightrope. And I'm not too clear exactly how they rigged those, and I kind of hope the movie explains that a little bit. Just just from a mechanic standpoint, it's incredible that this is stuff they smuggled in, basically in a laundry hamper, and did it in the dark. Yeah, the movie plays out like a heist at points, which is one yeah. of the things I think is so interesting about it. Yeah. Oh, it's totally, it's totally a heist movie, and I love heist movies. I would love to know what the charges are. I mean, I guess trespassing technically for being, but there's no actual charge for being on a high wire in between the towers. Performing in public without a license? I'm going to have a look, see what it says. It wouldn't be hilarious if that were the charge. Like, he did not have a busking license. Look at all the damage your damn uh, bow and arrow did to our building. Possibly the movie will talk about it. And, well, he was... When was he released? Did the documentary talk? Was it almost right away? Almost right away, yeah. Yeah, so there's probably not even, you know, anything that seriously could charge him with. Kind of public disturbance, maybe. But I also imagine, you know, a high-profile thing like that that didn't go wrong, you know, how much would they want to... Disorderly conduct. Trespassing. Trespassing. All charges are dismissed. Well, yeah, of course. They just what would you, you wouldn't really know what to do or say and it's it it was such a big deal as well i mean people yeah. were cheering him on because it was such a spectacle you know where they don't want to be the party pooper to that and it was a different age you know the, the twin towers meant something totally different then to what right what i mean at the after. time they they had just finished them and people were like god those things are fucking ugly <laughs> and 
one of the things the High Wire Act did was make people feel completely different towards them and more warm and fuzzy, which is a weird human thing, but like the most human thing I can think of. Um, so he, all the charges were dropped as long as he would do a free performance in Central Park, which he did. And that was pretty much the last, near as I can tell, it was the last illegal performance he ever pulled off. Well, how do you top that, really? <laughs> right, exactly. He had he had done an act between on the, the Sydney Harbor Bridge, and he had walked between the towers of Notre Dame. And then he did the World Trade Center, and he was like, okay, well, now everybody wants to throw money at my head for this stuff, so I guess I'll sell out or something. I'm sure the world of tightrope walking was really dismayed that he sold out. It used yeah. to be about the rope walking now, it's just about the money, you Frenchman. Exactly. One of the things that Manawara does really well is they don't actually have any video footage of him crossing the wire. It's all photographs, but that doesn't matter because it plays out like this the great climax to this heist movie. Mm-hmm. You don't really feel like you're watching still photos. It's a really well-made piece of film, and I can't believe the guy that made that made the bloody theory of everything. Mm-hmm. He also made a documentary called Project Nim, which is one of the most heartbreaking films you'll ever see. It was about the, the Project Nim, where the scientists tried to decipher if you could raise a primate alongside humans and see if it would not necessarily become human, but if it could lessen the the lines of evolution I guess so there's one in particular example of a chimpanzee called Nim who was brought into this family and if, of course it starts out okay until he gets big and starts trying to attack people and eventually I believe the the chimp was sent away I think it was just to some like lab or something to be experimented on mm-hmm. it, it is just gut-wrenching because it's this cute little chimp and they were trying to raise it like their son and then it kept going chimpy on them so they couldn't do it. Yeah. So the the hubris of man is a popular talk, topic for such films. Yeah. So are you going to go see The Walk when it comes out? I, I, I am now. I wasn't before. I'm I, glad I, Zemeckis is making now. real movies now. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, when I first saw the previews, I was like, "Oh, this is Zemeckis wants another Oscar." Okay. Does he I have guess. an Oscar? Yeah, he got one for Forrest Gump. Oh, 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 yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Let's get him to win an Oscar for a good film. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, this is this is good and not more feel good schmaltz, because he's really good at that. And then sometimes he'll do something fun, like What Lies Beneath. I, but I keep forgetting that's his film. That was his... What he did in between filming breaks for Castaway. Really? Because they took, oh, like, yeah. was... six months a year between... So that Tom Hanks could lose a bunch of weight and become terrifying. <laughs> I When I was younger, we rented What Lies Beneath one night, just, you know, like, Saturday night film with me and my sister. That is a scary ass movie. It's a scary ass movie, and it's really well done. I really like the Frighteners, which is the film that he did with, uh, which is from he produced, I should say, because Peter oh, Jackson. You did the Frighteners? No, Peter Jackson did, but he produced it. I love the Frighteners. 
everyone was like, hey, this New Zealand guy is really good. You should give him money to make lots of films. And then no one saw The Frighteners. But they all saw Lord of the Rings, so it was okay. Mm. I love that meme. <laughs> Michael J. Fox kept calling the judge character Doc instead of Judge. <laughs> according to some behind-the-scenes trivia I read. I believe it. Does anyone have a favorite documentary? I will forever have a very soft spot for the Planet Earth series that Attenborough did. Ah, uh, Attenborough. Yeah, uh, exactly. Let's all take a moment and continue. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I saw... I happened on the first episode on TV, or not the first episode, an episode... That where they managed to get nighttime footage of a pride of lions hunting an elephant, which was just like, I can't believe that somebody actually got footage of this. It's incredible. And then um, I was working at Borders at the time and managed to scam. Uh, well, I didn't scam it. I bought it legally and everything. I got a copy with my employee discount. And it's so pretty and so well done. And each episode ends with like a five to ten minute bit on how they filmed some of the stuff in that particular episode. And they just cover polar bears and a giant pile of batshit, literal batshit, not crazy, but actual guano. That is taller, this pile is taller than me. And. Just stuff that I can't believe they got footage of. It's amazing. The DVDs have Attenborough's narration on American TV. They redubbed it with Sigourney Weaver, which, no offense to Sigourney Weaver, Attenborough's the one you want doing the narration for your nature documentaries. Come on. Come on. When uh, Planet Earth came out here, and I think I'm going to say it was about 2005, 2006, it was a huge deal. The amount of promotion that the BBC put into this thing alone, the, like the every advert for this thing was about four minutes long because they put it to the Sigur Ross song, Hoppy Pola. <laughs> but this was before that song was really overplayed. And this was the first time that most people had heard the song. So you can imagine the impact of seeing this three, four minute long advert for this incredibly beautifully shot nature documentary put to that song. I mean, it was just sobbing across the land. <laughs> Planet Earth was the first Blu-ray uh, I bought when we got a Blu-ray player, which is our PlayStation. And uh, we had the big HDTV and we bought the we bought the PlayStation. I'm wondering around, I think it was like Best Buy. And I was like, okay, what's going to be the first thing? And then I, they had the, in the Blu-ray section, they had the big, Planet Earth display, and I was like, yes. That's it. I'm going to see all that, of this. That is a valid and good life choice you made right there. Oh, I, I, I was so happy. It's this, to me, like, movies, whatever, these big nature documentaries is why I want the highest definition of HD that money can buy me. <laughs> They're amazing to watch. Do you remember, I think Planet Earth is the series that has the, um, the underground caves where they have two levels of water. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that scene? I think so. That one stays with me, and I know it always to stay with my husband. We 
we had to rewind it when we watched it, we kind of gasped. So I think the caves are somewhere in South America and they're flooded. So people go like scuba diving into them, except there's a portion of the caves where the water is like two different densities or compositions. I'm not entirely sure of the word. So if you ascend from one to the other, it looks like you're coming up like from water into air and it can literally kill people who then go, <gasps> but it's just different water. Mm-hmm. But because the camera is HD, it actually like they're coming up and like, Oh look, they're, you know, they, there's no water there. They actually hit like a cave, which has air. And they're like, that's not air. That's just different water. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. It's like, Oh my God, this planet is amazing. The world's amazing. Yep. We were joking earlier about, uh, you know, our all, our favorite documentary stuff for all of us, just Attenborough whispering at things. Yep. I just want my daily life to be Attenborough sort of whisper narrating everything I do. I you know, really and here we see waiting by the bus stop, <laughs> as in futilely waiting as 45 minutes it is late again. <laughs> well, we actually haven't really discussed this, but what I wanted to bring up is, do we consider these kind of nature things, the same categories, documentaries, because usually when people say the word documentary, you know, we think of everything that gets nominated, say Oscars, and this tend to be, I guess they're, they're either biographies or stories about some big event. There's this idea that they're, they're going to be historically significant or somehow intellectually, you know, satisfy some intellectual curiosity. Why is it that you're probably not going to see one of these big nature ones up for an award? Do you, do you think they belong in a different category? Well, technically they have been. I mean, look at March of the Penguins. Mm-hmm. Fair. I, I think there is a sense that they are more tea time friendly pieces, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, March of the Penguins is fine for what it was. I wouldn't have given it the award myself, but, you know, it did what it set out to do well and it got Morgan Freeman there, who is like your one level below Attenborough mm-hmm. in terms of the nice voice you want narrating your cute animals. <laughs> for... Uh, at least in Britain, I don't know what the case is in, on your guys' side of the pond, but those kind of nature documentaries are so ubiquitous with British television. It's just part of the thing that you grow up with. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really necessarily feel like what a lot of people would classify as the documentary, because nature documentaries in and of themselves are kind of a different thing. They are more designed for that kind of general audience, particularly young kids, because this is a way a lot of kids get into nature and science and animals and, mm-hmm. when they're younger. Oh, definitely. Those. I was just thinking about it. When I grew up, we had the series in Russia, and it bothers me because I can't remember the name. But we all grew up on it. It like I was glued to the TV, never miss an episode. It was specifically kind of this big nature documentary stuff, and it was just you know, it ranked maybe just slightly below cartoons when you were like six years old, but only very slightly. <laughs> Because you're still going to watch every episode. And they had the narrator, who I guess is, you could call the Russian Attenborough. <laughs> you know, with the kindly face and the voice. And you were like, oh my god, this is the best experience. It's like a kindly uncle is like walking me through all these woods and deserts and whatever. And it was lovely. <laughs> it was the best. Yeah, on on PBS, when I was growing up, we had Wild America, which was a half hour show about wild animals in America and then there was also Nova which wasn't always animals it was often other sciencey things um, that's where a lot of us saw a baby being born for the first time and were traumatized by it 
Um, <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> and uh, PBS always had something animal related to watch. Um, I think Planet Earth definitely took that to a whole new ridiculous level that we didn't realize it could go. I think there is a conception that animal documentaries are sort of cutesy, but then a lot of the ones particularly that Attenborough have done have been brutal. Mm -hmm. The animal world is full of dicks. Yep. So just things like baby animals being thrown around and killed, and there, there's no you know, hiding away from the realities of those situations. Which I think is also an important thing, particularly when you're growing up. Mm-hmm. You need that exposure to how you know, dark things can get. Yeah, but I think I have... that is often overlooked when people talk about, well, there's nature documentaries and then there's real documentaries, as if you can't get that kind of insight into the world through something that's designed for a mass audience. But then again, I think the idea of treating documentaries as something that only you know, a handful of people are going to see is a problem in and of itself. That can be handy if you're making a documentary about an incredibly niche subject. Because not everything has to be for everybody. But the assumption that nobody wants to see it is the problem. Mm-hmm. Do you think a part of the reason for the distinction is that the nature documentaries are seen as belonging more to the category of education? Possibly. Yeah. Most na- nature documentaries are not going in with a specific agenda. And, I mean, they, they do have them. Anything put on film and edited has an agenda. But the nature documentary, it's not as obvious as, say, the Winehouse documentary or anything else and there are certainly other documentaries where it's so clear what the bias on the part of the filmmaker is and I think that I don't really know where I'm going with this I think that has something to do with it the nature documentaries are are seen as just trying to present the world as it is I think you're onto something there because Although, did you notice that, for example, in the latest BBCs like Planet Earth, and I think the follow-up is, Life is kind of a follow-up, it's the next Mm -hmm. one in the series, do you notice how they do now have more of a narrative? Life seems, for example, to kind of follow, well, not entirely, you know, babyhood to adulthood for an animal, but there'll be kind of a cycle in their their life. Mm -hmm. Maybe it goes with the seasons or, or some kind of progression of, like, actual... And it crafts a story. Like, I've noticed it about these, you know, these latest big BBC documentaries is that they've definitely moved from the nature documentaries I remember as a kid to to have a, a little more of an actual narrative progression. I'd agree with that. I think that just sort of makes watching it a little bit more... It's easier for the human mind to kind of grasp your point and if your point is look at how awesome nature is here's a story of a mother polar bear who comes out of hibernation with her two cubs and now we're going to check in on them periodically throughout this hour as she takes them from the nursery slopes to the sea where she teaches them how to swim or whatever and occasionally looking in on other polar bears including one who ends up dying of wounds from a fight with a walrus 
Here you go, kids. Nature. I have a friend who has two children that are, I think, three and four. Or at least when we had this conversation, they were three and four. She said that, yes, they did watch Planet Earth, but she had to be at this point in in their development she only let them watch certain bits because especially the oldest one has anxiety issues and anything that involves the death of anything would throw him into a spiral of anxiety and he just couldn't co- he didn't have the tools to cope with it yet i think it's also just as changing audiences perhaps because the the nature documentary used to be almost exclusively the the domain of the BBC in the UK mm-hmm. but now we have way more channels and the BBC is losing a lot of its funding so places like Sky are making a lot of things that were usually the thing you would expect to see on BBC One from David Attenborough so if you, you've got to look for something that is I guess a new spin which is kind of a cynical way to look at it but needs must in the television industry I mean, we we used to have things like Discovery that would have all sorts of nature-type documentaries, and then Discovery and the Learning Channel and the History Channel all kind of got degraded into going for ratings, so there's precious little Discovery on the Discovery Channel now, which is sad. What are you talking about? I really learned a lot from those ancient aliens. <laughs> yes, I can't believe the first time I watched that show, by the way. I thought that this was like an Onion parody. No, this is a real nope. show. It's an actual thing. It's an actual thing. Did you guys see... Oh, this is... This is where we go into, like, it used to be so much better and now things are bullshit kind of territory. But <laughs> Discovery had the stupid ancient shark fake documentary thing during one of the shark weeks like two years ago do you remember yes i hate shark week so much on so many levels why is shark week a thing i don't because discovery decided to make it a thing and people jumped on it because the zeitgeist is weird are we so hungry for memes yes rescuing point from the depths of rage about shark week the point was it's not that you've even like Shark is not the point, is what I'm saying. The point I was trying to make is that Discovery did this thing where it was a fictional show about what is basically a movie monster. You know, this prehistoric shark doesn't exist. It was almost like they took Godzilla and made it a real animal. But they very specifically, on purpose, made it in a tone of a real documentary. And that, I had a problem with that. Because I felt like it almost preyed on people. Like, you could point fingers and laugh and say, oh, haha, you were just stupid to realize this couldn't be real. But, you know, not everyone's a marine biologist. Discovery, even now, still has at least the dregs of its old reputation of being about real things and teaching people. And when they take a specific tone and do everything in their power to say, this is a real documentary they film, with no disclaimers of, you know though it's actually a little movie, like made for TV movie we threw together, I felt like they were lying to people. Like, I felt like they were on purpose trying to deceive people, and that made me angry. Yeah. No, you're right. It is pretty depressing that the re- you know, stories about the reality of our world just aren't enough for people. But then again, documentaries, their very foundation is built on that kind of bullshit. The very first, you know, the, the, 
the sort of pioneer of the documentary form as we know it was a film called Nanook of the North, which was about, I believe it was one of the, an Eskimo person who lived up in, um, I want to say, Quebec. And, you know, was pretty, the, the filmmakers were pretty open about the fact that things were changed, they were incidents that were staged and refilmed and shot in a different order and stuff. You know, so the idea of entertainment coming before information has been at the the heart of the documentary form since the beginning. And we have these debates about, well, what is the job of the documentary? What is it supposed to achieve? How truthful is it supposed to be? For which I don't really have an answer. I, I would like to get all indignant and say it should always be about telling the truth. But there are a lot of documentaries made by what I deem activist filmmakers that I really like. Mm-hmm. One of my favourite documentaries is The Invisible War by Kirby Dick. First of all, his name is Kirby Dick. Let's, okay. <laughs> it's, but the, the doc, he makes films very specifically about taking on a very large, seemingly impenetrable wall of power. So The Invisible War is about sexual assault in the US military mm-hmm. and how rape and assault has really been covered up and not dealt with properly. And there is a very clear point of view for this film there's a very clear intent which is we want you to see this thing that is happening and get angry about it Mm -hmm. and you do and it's really hard to watch obviously but you you couldn't really accuse that film of being you know neutral or balanced in the way that many people think documentaries are supposed to be because to do that you would have to assume that there is another side of the story to tell which would mean that horrible insidious you know assumption that there are you know two equal sides to be heard when it comes to sexual assault and that would have weakened the power of the film yeah but then to contrast that he also made a film called outrage which is about closeted gay politicians who promote anti-gay legislation and the very act of outing someone and the ethics of that so basically what they do is talk about people like Larry Craig and Charlie Crist and a number of other politicians who are very conservative, who have very homophobic um, legislation in place that they've pushed for. There's people like Ed Koch as well from the former New New York mayor who basically ignored AIDS while it was ravaging the city but was also gay himself. And it talks about if you are living a hypocritical life, we've got the right to expose that. And I don't know if that's necessarily true. And that made me feel very discomforted. Mm-hmm. Mainly because one of the things that they do is they go after a news anchor by claiming, well, he works for Fox, therefore it's okay for us to out them. And it's like, I don't think it is. Right. I think you've kind of undone your entire argument by going after this one guy who doesn't seem to have done much wrong. So I think if you're going to go for that kind of very subjective kind of filmmaking where you have a point of view and you want to tell it you damn well better make sure the foundations of your argument are strong I didn't did notice one thing about documentaries is when they're about um, a person I, documentary has the power because they're telling a, a human story to make you feel sympathy and empathy for people you probably wouldn't have thought you would find that empathetic before you know a movie camera made them look so human to you an example of thinking of is i saw um the september issue in theaters Do you guys i love that, that film which one was that 
It's the one about Vogue. It's about the making of one of the September issues of Vogue. So Anna Ventura is one of its principal subjects. Mm-hmm. Anna Ventura is, you know, kind of fast, fascinating figure of herself. You know, she's very powerful, and there's a lot said kind of about her foibles and eccentricities. And, and but one thing is, is I learned from this documentary is, you know, she comes from a, a family of political activism and kind of hard-hitting political reporting. I think it said her father was a reporter. Her dad was the editor of the London Evening Standard, which is one right. of the biggest newspapers. Her brother's the political editor of The Guardian. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the kind of background she's from. Her, her siblings kind of went down that road. And there's a moment where the interviewer in the movie asks her, you know, what do, what do your siblings think of what you do? And she she looks a little, you know, a little sad, kind of contemplative, goes, I think they're amused. Yeah, I think, and you know, for a moment, I felt sorry for Anna Ventura. <laughs> I felt so sorry for poor Anna, whose siblings like looked down on her silly little magazine, because <laughs> all the power she has, and she has actual, you know, Miranda Priestly levels of power over fashion, <laughs> over what right. people wear. You know, her brothers and sisters are like <laughs> you and you silly magazines that are not important to the world and it made and you know she's sad because it doesn't matter what she does to her family and it was just such a strange moment and we only had it because you know somebody had that camera and asked her the question and you could see her give you know an honest response to it that's actually a really good documentary because it's taking on this world that is such a caricature in, in many ways like, anyone who's seen Zoolander will have trouble looking at the world of fashion without sort of sniggering. But it takes all of these people in it and shows them that actually what they're doing is a job. They're right. very dedicated to their job. They're very good at their job. That's the thing I think you get from the September issues. For all your complaints about Anna Winter, she's good at what she does. But then you get to meet people like, the film also focuses on Grace Coddington, who is mm-hmm. the Our deputy director? editor. I think she's certainly a creative... She's probably she's the only person at Vogue who will talk back to Anna Winter. <laughs> she's been there from the very same the very same day that Anna Winter started, so did she. And she's a former model from Wales who has this massive red hair and actually talks human. You know, she doesn't sort of fall at Anna's feet or run away from her in fear. She sort of stands her ground and has a very specific image that she wants for the magazine. And I found her really fascinating. I think she comes out of it as a bit of the star, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, creative director is the current title. And right. she, she's kind of basically one of the other higher-ups at Vogue. She also wrote a book about how awesome it is to have cats. <laughs> it's called The Cat Look Cats. Just, just think about that. <laughs> in fact, the movie was almost kind of framed as a conflict between her and Anna because they were pulling that September issue in various directions. Yeah, she's putting together all of these incredibly beautiful photo shoots that she styled herself and she dresses the models herself and puts them in the right places and tells them, look, you can have a cream cake if you want. I don't mind. <laughs> it's a wonderful bit where they're photographing one of the women and I believe it's in Paris. Um, and she's wearing this incredibly tight corset and a big hat and they bring over this like box of cream cakes and she just sort of slowly picks it up and is thinking is she going to do something with it and Grace Coddington just goes I don't mind you can have it if you want it's okay you can eat it's fine and then she just very happily munches on this cake 
but she puts together all these beautiful photo shoots and uh, then one by one they're kind of cut from the magazine and she's obviously not happy but by the end of it spoiler alert she does get everything in the magazine so it's very clear that this woman actually there's real respect there so it's one of, it's a very fascinating insight into that kind of productive but antagonistic work relationship between two extremely powerful women. Mm-hmm. Even when Anna Winter is being really bitchy. <laughs> and she can be very bitchy because mm-hmm. she's Anna Winter. There's a wonderful moment where she's at home and she's looking through all of the old magazines with her daughter. And they ask, would you like to go into fashion? And she just goes, no. <laughs> And her mum just sort of looks slightly amused, but a little bit pained by that. (laughs) The guy that directed the September issue produced one of my other favourite documentaries, The War Room, which is the film about the presidential campaign of Bill Clinton. And it was kind of the first time the world was introduced to George Stephanopoulos and James Carville. Mm -hmm. And you get to see their sort of adorable bro relationship as they're trying to get this outsider cam- uh, candidate to win the presidential campaign in the age that CNN is becoming a thing so they can kind of exploit the 24-hour news cycle to their advantage. Mm-hmm. That one's done in um, Cinema Verite style where they just film things. There's no interviews filmed afterwards. There's no voiceover or things. They just take the footage and then construct the narrative, which can be a really tricky way of doing a film because if you film a bunch of stuff and nothing happens, it could just make for a very boring film. Yeah. Fortunately, it's a presidential campaign. Things are going to happen. <laughs> there was a very funny moment in it as well where there was a brief shot of Mary Matalan being interviewed for the Bush campaign. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of cut back to James Carville and it's like, aren't you marrying that woman? It's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just a sort of look of like slight pain but real pride in his face. That's a really great documentary, actually. Yeah. I think that's one of the ones that... If you really like, if you're really interested in politics, it's kind of a must-watch. Mm-hmm. It's the first one that kind of really highlighted: hey, politics can actually be really interesting when it's not driving you around the bend. Yeah, <laughs> wrong time to be talking about that, isn't it? Oh, both sides it's, of the pond. Um, because of the way our election cycles work now, where if you're not gearing up for 2016, you're gearing up for your 2020 run, Kevin. There is no <laughs> off time. I was about to say, what candidate's Kevin? I was like, oh, that Kevin. <laughs> Kevin. Our Kevin. <laughs> so I have a kind of closing question for us to go out on. Yeah. Okay. Documentary adjacent. What is some of your favorite TV show, the documentary episode examples? The West Wing did one that was terrible. Oh, that wasn't your question, was it? Oh, the terrible <laughs> example will do too. It'll be even better. Go ahead. Yeah, um, Access in season five, which is the it's one hundred percent the weakest season of the West Wing, when Aaron Sorkin had just left, and John Wells was still trying to figure his shit out, and they do this episode of. Uh, like a PBS film crew comes in and is working and following CJ around for a couple of days. And it's framed as if this is being released now that Bartlett is out of office, but it takes place at the point in the season. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that gets contradicted 
less than six episodes later and it's just ridiculous and terrible and I hate it so much and it's still not the one episode that I skip on rewatches because I really like getting my my frothing rage on. <laughs> it's so bad. So do you uh, mean um, in terms of a dramatized TV show that does a documentary style or is in a documentary that has appeared on TV? I mean a dramatized TV show that does an episode that's their, you know, uh, documentary style episode. I really like the one The Simpsons did. <laughs> oh, the behind yeah. the laughter the behind one the, where, yeah, that where one it's like behind great. the music. Um, where you get the what happens when the family start falling out with each other behind the scenes and bring their lawyers to the Thanksgiving dinner and things. Yep. Someone, how is everyone feeling? You don't have to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Hawaii Five-0 did a fun one. I want to say season four. I don't know. I binged it all. Season three or four. I have like uh, an honorary mention and then one I actually was thinking of when I, when I started this conversation. The honorary mention goes to M.A.S.H., Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. But the one I was actually thinking of is a Stargate SG-1 episode. Uh, they called it Heroes. It was episode 7. They were they thought they were going to get cancelled. So this was their dramatic character we care about death episode because they didn't think they'd be getting renewed. Saul Rubinick plays the director of the documentary. So it it's not shot entirely from the documentary point of view. Like it actually shows all the documentary makers around the base. But what it's interesting is that you follow mostly them. So a lot of things that are happening to our heroes that you used to seeing on camera, you're now just kind of seeing them run around the, you know, the base and doors are slamming in your face because, oh, you're not allowed into the secret meetings because the documentary makers aren't allowed into the secret meetings. And I, <laughs> I thought it was well done. I, I thought Saul Rubinick really carries that episode. I think he's great in the role. It it ends a little bit schmaltzy because because just because of the nature of the show, it has to a little bit end with, you know, these are the brave men and women who do this for us. And it actually like within the the, the premise of the show is it's not for immediate airing because Stargate is still secret. This is kind of the government saying someday it's going to come out. Mm-hmm. We better have something that shows what we were doing. But the death is very affecting and effective. And I thought the episode was really well done. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it. So, I think this is us on documentaries. <laughs> yep. So, this has been episode 34. It's still 34, right? Yes. Excellent. We haven't been talking that long. <laughs> <laughs> and we will be back at you next month, where I believe we will be talking about comic books. I think I heard about five or six people squee in the future. Because when you hear this, it'll be after we recorded it. I'm psychic. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a weird week. Anyway, this has been episode 34. And we'll be back at you next month. Bye! You have been listening to Anglophies, a Made of Fail production. Didn't Mash actually have several documentary episodes? I feel like I remember there being two. Like Matt, they? they did at least three. I have never seen an episode of Mash. <gasps> Kaylee! <laughs> <laughs>